Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Mark Mennell is a writer, teacher, and speaker based in Berkshire, England. I met him when he spoke at the Hutchmoot Conference in 2018, and I immediately knew he was my kind of people. He thinks deeply without taking himself or the world too seriously. Mark Mennell, thanks so much for being here today. I, I, uh, when we, we met at Hutchmoot last year, mm-hmm. and I just loved having a meal or two with you and, uh, uh, and just love the work you're doing. So, so thank you for that. Thank you very much. Yeah, so so your book, Wilderness of Mirrors, talks about um, the culture of cynicism um, and how dangerous that is and, and, and what some remedies are. Um, and this podcast, as you may know, is, it's not so much – it's very much about the writing process. Um, right. And so I'm, I'm interested in what does um, – in a culture – Characterized by contempt and cynicism, what's the writer's responsibility in that kind of world? Um, I think that's a really important question, and I think it's actually not that contemporary. Um, and I think it's significant that it's something that vexed George Orwell huh. um, considerably um, before the Second World War began. So he, um, he famously um, wrote... I guess a sort of short paper article called um, "The Poli- Politics and the English Language." Right. Yeah, I teach that and, pretty often when I teach creative writing. Right. Well, I think it's just of such fundamental importance, both both for good writing, but also just for the political implications of what we write. And I think he acknowledged that words have extraordinary power, and he was beginning to see how words were being exploited and abused and distorted and they were being used for an effect rather than to convey meaning right and so i think that was a a very sort of significant distinction that he made and and i think that gets to the heart of some of the problems we've got in the contemporary world um you're saying uh, in this i guess your point being so much of our language is is not especially interested in in how it reflects reality, correct. But rather how I can, you know, move move the move the needle one way or another, or or push an agenda. Right. So um, it's it's sort of rhetoric over reality. Yeah. It's about um, propaganda rather than um, truth, discernment, argument trying to sort of work together to find out what is um that you know in the age of the soundbite and um the image particularly you know neil postman was banging on about this right uh, kind of thing as well it's i think we're seeing that that writ large all all over the world now Hmm. um there was a the part of the problem here is is that dehumanizing people that you disagree with it really right. works you know i mean it does. i mean in terms of your if if your desire is to motivate people to act or to vote for you or to to whatever it's it's really a pretty i mean it's 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 disheartening how effective it is to to treat people as if you know they're stereotypes or as if they're 
or for that matter, mm-hmm. as if they're the you know the enemy just because they disagree yeah. on one point or another. Well, exactly, and um, I think I mean again, this is nothing new. I mean the the, the the Greek orators were talking about this. This is what was happening in the Roman Senate with Cicero. I mean, it was very much about um, winning battles over people. So it was matters of power rather than winning arguments to find out what is true and real. Um, so that, you know, there's absolutely nothing new about that. I think the problem today is you've just got a convergence of a whole range of different factors plus technology, mm-hmm. making it very easy to rally support, you know, instantly. Right. And suddenly you've got a sort of Twitter shaming uh, stampede. And I mean, the, you know, not going into the ins and outs of the specifics, but, you know, Roger Scruton is a, as a well-known philosopher right. here in the UK. Um, and he had, um, you know, somebody had found something that he'd said about something. And he was given a sort of post a government uh, job to do, and within five hours of it going online, he'd lost the job. Really, um, and you know, it was like, whoa, where, what, what happened? You know, you've had your cornflakes, and then by lunchtime, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, so knowing that rhetorically speaking, um, the the kind of de- dehumanizing language is so effective. As as uh, you know, you're a writer who believes that everybody's made the image of God. Mm. Um, I mean, how, I don't even know what the question is here. I mean, how do you is is it a situation where you just sort of um, give up that rhetorical advantage as a way of I mean, just for the sake of of reality, honesty. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. For instance, you know, Paul in the Corinthian letters um, talks about how, you know, we didn't come with all this sort of wisdom and power and all the things that you expect the the traveling orator in the agora in the marketplace to be, um, you know, touting his goods. And, and the way they made money was just by being impressive with all kinds of verbal fireworks. And Paul saying, no, we've got none of that. Um, we're just presenting Christ and him crucified. Ironically, of course, um, his letters, and particularly the Corinthian letters, are full of rhetorical devices, and huh. he, he's, he's using some quite clever, uh, clever things. Um, but I think what is, what is clear is that he is still wanting to serve truth rather than just to win arguments or, or look impressive or anything like that. He has... Um, uh, rejected that kind of approach, and in, I suppose he's more interested in in winning the person for the truth, so that they stick with the truth, rather than winning the person for his camp. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I think, I think even when he can be hard on people, um, it, it feels like he's. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about was it is it in Galatians that he says, you know, basically, wh- why are you letting yourself be a slave? Why, why are you why are you uh, allowing yourself? I mean. He's reminding people of of reality, you know, of some reality that he didn't invent. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, I mean, I think that's such an important. When I think about the writer's job, um, I think it's it's exceedingly important, and I think you, I'm sure you will agree with this, that we, um, even the imaginative writer, even the fiction writer, our job is not to spin some imaginary some alternate truth, but rather to say, 
to, to invite the reader into some truth that's not obvious from, right. from their everyday world. And, and one of the truths that seems obvious from the everyday world is that might makes right and that, mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, that you do whatever you need to, to, to make a point, win a, win a argument, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the writer is, is always saying, no, 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 there's something truer than, than what you mm-hmm. see and, and what you hear. Um, and here's an invitation into it. I think that's, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, basically, we are, we're not trying to humiliate. We're not trying to batter. We're not trying to um, sort of win over or pull the wool over people's eyes. We're trying to persuade if that's what we're trying to, you know, if that's the purpose of the writing. Right. Or we're trying to invite, you know, in, in a piece of great fiction, we're trying to invite the reader to step into somebody else's shoes and say, look at it from this perspective, which is an act of generosity, yeah. both of the of the, um, the 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 author and the reader. Mm-hmm. You'll say, okay, now I'm going to suspend my disbelief. I'm going to suspend whatever things might preoccupy me at the moment, and I'm going to stand in this person's shoes yeah. for the, um, however long it, this story takes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I'm always talking about the generosity that the author needs to author, offer to the reader, but I love your point that the, the reader's offering some generosity to the, to, the, to the writer, too. I think that's right, and I guess that comes out of my sort of day job being a preacher, because I've, you know, in those crucial first 90 seconds or whatever it is of a sermon, um, especially in a culture in Europe, um, and in many parts of the states, of course, um, which, which is increasingly secular, um, and the idea that anybody would listen to a monologue for thirty, perhaps forty minutes tops, um, you know, what else? What other um, sort of platform or sphere in society does that happen? Wow. It doesn't. <laughs> Not even politicians get that. They yeah. they get. 30 seconds on the news Um, and you know they might be long speeches but they're not going to be unless you're a dictator in which case you own the tv station (laughs) Um, and then they can go on for four hours but you're not going to do that anywhere else and so in those um, initial seconds of a sermon you've got to give people a reason to spend 30 minutes of their brain time because otherwise they'll be thinking about what did i miss out for the lunch or you know we should invite that guy or whatever (laughs) Um, and in a sense, you're doing the same for writing, I think. You're trying to say, well, you're making a case for why people should give their attention. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, you, uh, you mentioned to me earlier today that you're working on a novel. Mm, so strange. <laughs> that is an odd thing to do. Uh, Very odd. <laughs> so after... I can't go with reality. That's basically it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Eight, eight nonfiction books, eight uh-huh. persuasive books... Theoretically. Theoretically persuasive. <laughs> I guess we could ask around who's been persuaded. <laughs> um, and now fiction. Um, what's uh, – tell me about that. How's that switch going for you? Um, I've always been um, a literature guy, humanities background. I can't do science. I can't do mathematics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I leave that to other people. Most of the time, I you know, I just have no time for that or or ability. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always read and wanted to to, to um, read literature um, from different cultures. So I work 
in many different countries in my job. And whenever I go to a new country, I always try to read some fiction by an author from that country because mm-hmm. you, you know, you just gain something from that. So it's always been a passion. But I think since before I became a Christian at 18, I've, I've always wanted to do it. And so there's only to write a novel that is, um, and there's only one way to find out whether you, you can, and that's, you just have to, to try. Um, so I, I'm about a third of the way through, and um, I, I think I've been amazed by how different it is from writing other stuff. I, I guess, you know, many people would testify to this, but it's a very different process, and actually I find it much more scary. Hmm. Why? Can, can you put a finger on what's more scary about it? I think when you're, um, you know, you're pitching an, a nonfiction book to um, either an agent or an editor or a publisher, you 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 have a thread. You have an argument. You might not know the little details along the way, but you know where you're going because otherwise you wouldn't be setting out on that journey. Right. I think with fiction, um, you've got a scenario, perhaps you've got a, a situation, or you've got a maybe a, a moral puzzle to tease out, or, or, or whatever it is, and and yet actually if you're trying to be real and true to the characters you've created and so on, you actually, well, I, I don't know. I personally don't feel I know exactly where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things that I can relate to a kind of writer's block um, scenario is you, you, you're very conscious that every creative decision is like a fork in the road. And, and so you make a choice out of however many options. And then you're conscious that with unwittingly three or four or five junctions down the road, you've actually precluded something you want to do because of a decision you made. And so, and I'm not a chess player at all, so I cannot (laughs) think three moves ahead. And so sometimes I can be just sitting there thinking, but if I do this, what's what's going to happen there? And, 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 And so on. So it's just like this infinite range of possibilities. Yeah. And I think what I've realized is that road leads to madness if you're trying to plot it all out. Um, I just want to get to know the characters in in the story and just and be a bit more reckless about it, just see where it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was quite a sort of um, a bump to get over, I found. The, um, you say getting to know the characters. Um, that I was, when you were talking about all these, these very, you know, these, these decision trees that have, you know, this juncture mm. I can go five ways. Um, I'm glad to hear you go straight to knowing the characters because I, I feel like that's the only way you can possibly know what to do at mm. those at those decision trees, you know. Yeah. Is, I mean, uh, I think um, I, because I'm coming out of this, coming at this pretty cold, I, I've not really done this kind of thing before. And I think teachers at school would have been surprised because I don't think I did creative writing much at school at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it, it's just been sort of percolating over the decades. Yeah. Um, but I think because of that, I, you know, I've read all the sort of the books that people tell you to read Stephen King on writing or, or um, you know, all those ones. Yeah. And, and I think that became very clear to me quickly and I thought about the books that I'd loved and those that, that really annoyed me. And I think one of the sort of consistent things was you knew where you were with these people immediately, even if you didn't know everything about them. Right. Um, but that's what gave you confidence to keep reading, that it wasn't just a formula or 
an agenda. Mm-hmm. Have you reached a point in your story that you said you're a third of the way through um, mm-hmm. where the characters have started to surprise you? A little bit, yeah. Um, so um, I've got just a little handful of, of friends who are reading bits, and um, there was an argument that a couple of the characters were having. Um, so someone who's a sort of grandmother's age and somebody who's early 20s. Um, and um, the the girl in her 20s was quite rude to the old one. Um, and that, you know, one or two people sort of hit on that and thought, hang on, what's going on here? Um, and yet, when I hadn't planned that, but when I wrote it, I thought, no, this needs to happen. Yeah. Because actually, there's something else going on here. And it was just quite interesting that that just sort of evolved. Yeah, yeah. You, um, the, the, the trick there, I think, in those moments is when, when a character does something, something surprising, the question is, does this feel like this has opened up a new door in that person's personality? Or does this just feel like another character just stepped in? And you know, right. is, there, There's different kinds of surprising actions, right? And mm. People surprise me all the time. And, I, and in, in, when they surprise me, I think, okay, there's something I didn't understand about that person before that now I do. Mm. And... Um, in a book, though, because the author can do whatever he wants to do, mm. <laughs> sometimes that, that character ends up doing something that just doesn't feel like it's revealed anything about the character. It just feels completely right. out of character. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's, that's the artifice. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, everything you write has to have some kind of significance. It's, it's the sort of gun on the wall thing, isn't it? Yeah, right. You can't just sort of throw in details and then just let them float around. And, and because actually... Um, I mean, even in life, when somebody does something out of character, they may not even know why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, you know, 30 years of therapy may not find that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, in a book, you just can't do that. Right. <laughs> it seems to me. Yeah. Okay. So you used a distinction earlier between, uh, you said inviting people in on the one hand, and maybe it was persuading and inviting. Is that... Was that the distinction you drew earlier? Um, or maybe a sort of parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, but both are... Um, I, I guess I was trying to define them in contrast to things like propaganda and um, um, a kind of lazy or untoward use of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um Rather than actually just seeing what what is true, what what means something here, how, how we understand things. Okay, so you weren't drawing, you weren't saying nonfiction persuades and fiction invites. That wasn't. Not that was Yeah, that's not. That wasn't no. your point. Yeah. No, um, I think both can do both. Right. Yeah. Do you um, do you think of uh, the as fiction as being more? of an invitation than a persuasion and, and nonfiction is more of a persuasion than an invitation. I, I, I'm sure that's right because, um, and you will know this better than I know it, but I, I think that um, when fiction sets out deliberately to be persuasive, yeah. then it just becomes propaganda. <laughs> um, it, yeah. it, it doesn't really live. It's, 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 I mean, 
I went to an exhibition at the Royal Academy in, in the UK, in London, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, and it was about um, Soviet propaganda uh-huh. it, from before the Second World War. So at the time when, you know, there was still great optimism right. and, um, you know, in the early 30s, actually intellectuals all over the world thought this was really the way ahead and it's just a matter of time before all of us join that bandwagon um but going around this exhibition looking at sort of posters looking at the 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 realist art that they were commissioning and um you know excluding all the sort of figurative or the um metaphorical or the abstract Mm -hmm. um it, it, it was just like being hit over the head with a sledgehammer. It was just like, this is this is what it is. There's no equivocation. There's no doubt. There's no invitation to think about this for a minute. Um, and I guess sometimes you can find a lot of writing trying like, uh, to, and doing that. And dare I say, um, some Christian fiction. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I, think you I haven't right. read enough of that to um have a very strong opinion mainly because um i don't want to read it no but that's really unfair. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so one of my heroes for instance is graham green a roman catholic and yeah. someone who became a catholic from a classic english private school anglican background mm-hmm. he wrestled with his own fallenness and he was a rogue yeah. um, and he would wrestle with that all his life and yet um, I have found some of his his novels so spiritually enriching because he's been real. Yeah. I think now this is this this is what it's about. Yeah. So you could say it's fiction written by um, a professing Christian. Yeah. Um, rather than just sort of Christian fiction that has an agenda to bully. Yeah. Yeah, or Christian fiction as a marketing category, which is a. Uh, I think that's a a big problem with what we call Christian fiction is that it's a marketing category, not a theological or artistic category. And basically, there's hardly any in the UK, as you might imagine. (laughs) Uh, We just don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, maybe uh, you can get some people to bring you over a package or something. I think that'd be lovely. Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) Well, I'm coming to Hutchmute in October, so maybe I can pick up something. That's what you you can do. Okay, so... um, as we were talking about persuading and inviting, um, I got to thinking about a phrase that Flannery O'Connor used. We've, we've only been talking for um, you know twenty nine minutes, and and uh, Flannery O'Connor is is, is just you know, now I'm coming really impressed. Up. Yeah, thank that's you. Quite, that's quite disciplined. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> that's, that's unusual for me. Um, <laughs> but um, but she talked about persuading through the senses. Um, right. You know the, the and, and it, I can't remember if this is in the same passage or not because she kind of. You know, tended to rehash in her essays, says the same things over and over again. But, but she talks about the idea that that the eye is an organ of judgment, and mm. and you know, and, and we know this. Um, you know, we're very familiar with the idea that inputs come in through our eyeballs or through our ears or whatever, and then the figuring out part of our brain or the judging part of our brain goes to work. And um, you know, she says inexperienced fiction writers think that. The sensing mechanism and the judging mechanisms are, are two completely different things, but the experienced writer knows that those two things happen simultaneously all the time. By the way, I said simultaneously because you're uh, British instead of simultaneously. So that, that was well, no, for you. I, I appreciate that cultural sensitivity. Um. <laughs> yeah, and so, and I think that's that. You know, when you've been writing eight 
nonfiction books of a persuasive nature. Mm. You're working so hard to organize those your ideas so that the the cerebral part of the brain can make sense of those things. And then now you're jumping the the barrier over to fiction. Mm. And if you seek to organize this around cerebral categories, you're not going to write a very good book. And, and, and I, you know, even if I didn't, I may not write a very good book. Because <laughs> that's possible. Yes, too. you're right. <laughs> I, um, I have confidence in you, Mark. <laughs> well, that, that's marvelous. Thank you. Uh, I'll keep going then. But, but it's um, all about presenting, you know, it's, it's presenting experience in as close as possible a way as you can to the way that we receive experience in real life. Right. And that's very different from organizing, from, from things having a logical or rational relationship with one another. And that's what nonfiction is all about. And that's not what and fiction is about. That's right. Um, and I think, you know, you could maybe sort of bring all of that under an umbrella of clarity. You know, you, you, you've, you read, and, and this is what Orwell is wanting to do, particularly because of the whole sort of, um, untoward use of um, oratory by politicians who are deliberately fogging things up so mm-hmm, that people mm-hmm. follow them without knowing what they're wanting to do, if anything. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of being a preacher, but also in terms of writing nonfiction, you are wanting clarities so that people know exactly as much as is possible for a reader, but to know exactly where you're going with this and why. Because if you're wanting to persuade, they need to they need to follow along. It's not just the sort of devices. Um, I think one of the things that's um, struck me um, is is exactly this in fiction. And I, I and you know I want to as much as possible. One of the the words in the back of my mind to try and avoid is exposition in the mm-hmm. in the narrative. So I'm. You know, it's it's the Star Wars dialogue problem um, <laughs> yeah. that's absolutely impossible for actors to say because it's just ludicrous. It's just yeah. so full of explanations of how the warp system works or whatever it's called. I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not a scientist. But then, of course, that's not real, <laughs> is it? So I better be careful. Um, but the thing is, um, what I'm trying to write about is it's actually set in um, in the Cold War, but it's not about spies, but it's set in East Germany in the 60s. But I'm trying to use music and um, nature as a way of trying to give people a sense of humanity in this system, in the architecture that is just brutalist and everything's rectangular, all of this. And so I'm trying to, uh, it's probably highly overambitious, but I'm trying to convey the emotional liberation that, say, um, going to uh, a concert of Shostakovich music yeah. brings to somebody. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's completely the antithesis of an argument. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I, when I read a story, somebody sends me a story, you know, for a critique or whatever, the, the first question I always am looking for is where are those places where I understand what the author is doing better than I understand what the characters are doing you know i i know why i know why the writer wanted that character to do that but i can't imagine the Uh character doing that in real life and and that's you know that's something that that's a great one that's a that's a challenge again when you're moved in nonfiction, in persuasive writing it's really important that the that the 
reader understand what the author is up to. Yeah. And in fiction, it's kind of important that they that it not feel like they know what the author is up to. I, I think that's really helpful. So I, I'm not going to be sending you my manuscripts anytime soon. <laughs> okay, um, good. <laughs> <laughs> just to give you a break. But, I, but maybe we need to just unpack persuasion a little bit, because in a way, in fiction, you're persuading the reader of the reality of this person. Yeah. In nonfiction, you're persuading of the the logic of the argument or yeah. the the fact that actually you've proved your case, mm-hmm. um, whether it's historical evidence or um, and uh, yeah, whatever it is. Well, yeah. Um, um, so plausibility, I suppose, is is maybe another way of putting it for fiction. Um, yes. And that's 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 the key thing. Does this person, th- this character, seem to live? Yeah. Yeah, and so you will very often give up clarity. Yeah. For the sake of a plausible character. And in in your persuasive writing, you better not give up clarity. Right. Uh, give up because anything else. Suddenly, that's yeah. right. You won't uh, be persuasive. Yeah. And in fiction, um, you know, there are plenty of cases where clarity ruins the the um uh yeah, the the plausibility, the, the yeah. So, um, some of those uh, close to me know that I'm mildly obsessed by you two, um, and I think Bono is interesting here. And I just wonder whether one of the reasons Bono drives people a bit crazy because they see him as self righteous and mm-hmm. um, all of that. And and you know, there's probably something in that I don't know. But but the point is. Um, I think the confusion comes because he is he's mixing two categories in a way. He's mm. a poet, and I think he's a fine poet. And um, I love the songs as much for their words and provocations as for the music. Yeah. But then he'll suddenly start preaching. Mm. And you, you want your preachers to be clear, but you don't want your poets necessarily to be clear. Yeah. Um, you want them to evoke or provoke um, but then when he suddenly starts pontificating, then you think, hang on, I, what, what's going on here? Now, actually, I can cope with the pontification because I, I personally think a lot of the time, not always, but he's earned the right to do it uh-huh. um, because there is an integrity behind it. He's not just a celeb yeah. guy who's jumping on bandwagons. He uh-huh. does his work. Uh-huh. But that, be that as it may, I think the thing is, I think it is confusing when he's blurred the lines. Yeah, that's interesting. I was at a... Uh, this is just an amusing anecdote. This is free, actually, Mark. This is, okay, this good. Is, so I'm not paying for this. You're not paying for this one. <laughs> I went to a... Um, <laughs> I went to a concert in a, you know, a venue, a bar, basically. Okay, it was a bar. And um, and there was... Are you the a, only one there? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and very crowded... You know, people were having a good time. There was a, there was a, um, this young performer who was giving his patter between his songs, and everybody was talking because they were at a bar, and that's what people do. They talk to each other at a bar. And he says, Hey, he kind of shouted everybody down and says, I'm trying to tell a meaningful story about, about my relationship with my father. And, and you're not listening. And he wasn't this. He wasn't joking. <laughs> like, it, and people just fell silent because they were just agog that this this guy thought yeah. they should. Well, be... they finish their drink quickly and leave. I would. <laughs> I came to here to have a chat. Nice time. 
But anyway, that made me think about about uh, you two mixing those. Yeah, I mean, this this young man didn't really understand what he was there for, right? Mm. Um, all right, yeah. uh, we got to wrap up. Last question. This is the question I like to ask at the end of these conversations. Um, who is a writer or a couple of writers who make you feel like writing? Who make you go sit down and write? Um, Graham Greene's definitely one. We've talked about him. Okay. Um, and I had a sabbatical a few years ago and tried to read all of him. I didn't quite manage it, but I did most of it. Um, and that was extraordinary. Um, I think a writer I really admire and, and have had the privilege of meeting is John le Carre. Uh-huh. Um, who has, I think, well, I, I, I know I'm not the only one, but um, has turned espionage, Cold War fiction into literature, and it really is yeah, great that's, quality stuff. I haven't read it, but I, I just hear it's just great stuff. It, uh, uh, he, and he is, he's just got a wonderful ear. He, in, in half a sentence, he can evoke a middle European guy who's a bit shifty. Really? He, he just can hear it and manage to sort of notate it like music. Yeah. Um, he's a he's a Brit, isn't he? He is. Uh, I'm afraid he is, yes. Yeah. Um, we have some writers over here. and um, <laughs> I've heard of some, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one I've discovered recently, um, and it's only because I was doing a course and this was on the set list, and I guess just because I judge books by covers, as everybody does, yeah. I would never have picked this up. But Elizabeth Strout. Um, I don't and know And she... She is from, I think she's from New England. She um, has won a Pulitzer and one or two others. And there's a book called Olive Kittredge, which is... Oh, yeah, I've heard of that book. Yeah, so a bunch of short stories Uh all set in the same town. Okay. And they're in a sort of fishing town. Okay. And um, there's this, this character, Olive, is a sort of thread through all of them to lesser or greater degrees. But I have to say, within five minutes, I was just... You know, staring at the page, just thinking that is just an amazing paragraph. Yeah, and it was just, it was just beautiful. Okay, I'm going to check um, that out. And I was, yeah, I was blown away. So um, it, it's nice making those kind of discoveries, really. And you just think, okay, now that I really, if I could write a paragraph like that, I could die happy. Yeah, yeah. All right, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for for Pleasure. negotiating the the time difference. You did a great job on that, by the way. Oh, well, you know, um, I can't do mathematics when I need to. <laughs> All right, thanks, and I hope to see you in uh, in October. That would be great. Thanks so much, Jonathan. See you, Mark. Cheers. Cheers. All right, thank you, and um, that was that was fun, except for your yep. dog. Your Could dog you hit the dog? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, no big oh well, you can introduce, um, she's called Pickle. You can introduce her. <laughs> The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio and the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to the Arcadian Wild for allowing us to use their delightful song, Finch in the Pantry, as part of this podcast. Check out their album of the same name for more excellent music. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. 
This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to fostering Christ-centered community and spiritual formation through music, story, and art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.